Okay, if you could turn to Esther chapter 4. That is where we are this morning. <clears throat> Hear the word of our God. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told the king, uh, sorry, told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might not, uh, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, uh, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Athak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Athak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants... And the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. 
Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this was written for our instruction, that we might endure, and through the encouragement of the Scriptures have hope. As the God of endurance and encouragement, grant that we would see Jesus, the one in whom we hope, through these Scriptures this morning, that the Spirit would enable us to trust in Him as He is presented to us in the Scriptures. It is in His name we ask. Amen. William Wilberforce is a very interesting person when you look at his history. Uh, he was born into wealth. Uh, his parents had, uh, had died, and so he was sent to a relative's house to be raised. And at first, the boarding school in which uh, he was sent, to which he was sent, um, was very evangelical, and he heard a lot about Jesus and about the gospel, and his relatives were not too happy about that. And so they changed the boarding school to one where he wasn't hearing those things. And so Wilberforce drifted greatly. As a young man, he wasn't sure what to do with himself, and so essentially, as a lark, he decided to run for parliament. What else should a young man do, right? Run for office. So he ran for office, and he won. In fact, for the rest of his life, he would never lose an election. Now, as a young man who was not a believer in Jesus Christ, he led what you might imagine to be uh, the normal life of a young man. He was a frequenter of parties and all that went with those parties. But then something happened. Jesus found him. But that's not all that happened. It was precisely because he was now a young Christian that he hit a crossroad. He was wondering, should I be, and many people have faced this question, should I be in government? Or should I seek to do something else? perhaps going into ministry. And so he hit a crossroads in his life where he had to face an amazingly difficult decision for a young man who was a new believer in Christ. Crisis. We see a similar crisis, so to speak, taking place within Esther. There is the national crisis that's taking place, but there's also a personal existential crisis that takes place. Esther is at a crossroads. There is the question of what she should do, just as there was the question of what William Wilberforce should do. And sometimes we find ourselves in those same kinds of places where we wonder, why are we here, and what are we to do in the midst of this personal crisis? Our big idea this morning is not what you have in your notes. <laughs> Christ uses us where He places us. Yes, sometimes God interrupts our train of thought, and He interrupted my train of thought last night right before I went to bed. 
That's his prerogative. Okay, so things will be a little different than what you have on your piece of paper from Thursday. Christ uses us where he places us. And so the first aspect of this that we see is that we are to visibly call on Christ when we are at the crossroad. We see a contrast within this passage between at the end of chapter 3, we see Haman and Xerxes calmly enjoying celebratory drinks as they have successfully plotted the demise of the Jews to take place in 11 months. They are pleased with themselves. Haman um, is pleased with himself and that he gets rid of Mordecai and every other Jew. And Xerxes is basically pleased because he gets a whole lot of money. This is contrasted with the city's confusion. It's noted at the very end of chapter 3, but it digs deeper here at the beginning of chapter 4 because Mordecai's inner turmoil is expressed visibly and physically. We see that he tears his clothes, that he put on sackcloth and ashes, and for most of us, that would seem rather extreme. I mean, how many of you on receiving bad news have done that? Has anyone decided to walk around in sackcloth recently? I didn't think so. He does this, but this is not enough. What he also does is that he goes without this, throughout the city. He's wailing and crying out bitterly. as I imagine the day after the 2016 election. <laughs> I suspect that there will be a lot of that going on. The people who are wailing and crying out. I'm not sure if there will be people actually preparing to move to Canada, uh, but I have heard plenty of people make that claim. Here we have a very distressing development that goes on and Mordecai cannot hold his personal distress within it must flow out he's not permitted of course within the city gate because Xerxes as most kings of that time doesn't want to be bothered by the distress of his people you don't wear a sad face when you enter the king's presence. But thankfully, our Father in heaven is not like Xerxes. He is not put off by our honest response of lament and crisis. But as I think about Mordecai's response, we are generally very uncomfortable, I imagine, when we read about that response, right? We're uncomfortable when our kids have a conniption on the floor because they don't get their way. When they're weeping and gnashing and maybe even tearing their clothes as they writhe upon the floor. We're not happy with that. We, we're very uncomfortable with that. And there's a sense in which we should be uncomfortable with that. I'm not encouraging you children to do any of that thing. But sometimes as Western people, I think we're like cats when it comes to pain. What does a cat do when it feels pain? It hides. 
Because in the cat's mind, if I'm out visible, another, a larger predator can find me and take advantage of my weakness. And so usually if you have a sick or injured cat, they're hiding under the couch or something like that where no one can find them. And so we as Westerners, we tend to go in private to weep and wail. But there was something very proper about the fact that Mordecai is weeping and wailing in public instead of in private. This is not just a personal crisis, this is a national crisis, and it was one that required a visible response. Because it was about life and death. This is not about an election. This is not about getting your way at the polls. This is about whether in 11 months you're still standing. And part of what's frightening about this, of course, is in addition to the fact that it was the edict of the king and therefore irreversible, there is no Supreme Court you can go to and get an appeal. No Supreme Court you can go to to get a stay of execution. This is dangerous. This is destructive. When Wilberforce was having his private crisis, when he was at the crossroads, so to speak, he expressed his confusion, uh, not in the way of putting on sackcloth and ashes, but he did seek out people for wisdom. For instance, he sought out the prime minister, and he also sought out John Newton to find out what it is he should do so that he would not be merely overwhelmed by the conflicting emotions that he felt. But we see that, that, that this, however, is not a, a personal or private crisis. This is a public crisis. And communities that are at a crossroads sometimes require public expressions of inner turmoil. I'm not talking about riots. But sometimes protests can be an expression of that inner turmoil that reveals to others that there is something very wrong. In the course of this uh, passage, we see that Esther's isolation is very evident because she requires these intermediaries to end her ignorance. You see, she hears from other people what's going on with Mordecai. She's not sure what's going on, you know, why it's going on. And so she's find out what the problem is. And she says, by the way, send him clothes so he can come to the gate. She can't go outside. She's trapped within the harem. Though she is a queen, she is a prisoner of a sort. She can't just go wherever she wants. She can't go wandering through the city. She's trapped. And so she sends the eunuch to, to be the intermediary, to go back and forth so that she can learn what's going on. And she is dismayed, of course, to discover that the death sentence has been placed on every Jew within the empire. And so we see, if we're honest, as we've talked about in previous sermons in this series, that the opposition of Satan continues to hinder and even threatens the church. And that requires a response. We are not intended to remain idle in the midst of that. 
And I think that just as they lamented, so there are times when she, when we should lament. I'm not talking about angry memes on Facebook. I'm not talking about riots. I'm talking about lament. We're much more comfortable with anger than we are with weeping. I know I am. Because, partially because weeping expresses our weakness, our sense of powerlessness, whereas rage is often an attempt to make us feel powerful even when we're not. And so we're much more comfortable with rage and anger than we are with weeping. And the proper response in the face of profound sin can be weeping, lamenting. And so we should lament things like abortion on demand. We should lament persecution of the church. We should lament political corruption. We should lament uh, oppression of people groups. We should lament terrorism. We should lament shootings that are unjustified. There is much for us to lament. And so we see that cultural conflict and other crises will place us at a crossroads, but we are not to hide our inner turmoil, but we should actually express that inner turmoil, but not in destructive ways. Secondly, as we look at this passage, we should recognize that uh, we should trust that Christ has you where you are for a reason. Mordecai starts uh, in his dialogue, and that's part of what's interesting in all of this, is that this chapter 4 is the first time we have actual quotes of Esther and Mordecai. Before then, it's been sort of just, you know, actions on their parts. Here we have some words that are finally relayed, and he acts like her father because he has adopted her, and he commands her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead. This is the language of prayer when it is directed toward God. And so in a sense, what he is saying here is intercede for your people. Go to the king and plead for the life of your people. Now remember, he had previously said to her, don't reveal you're Jewish. And now he says, essentially, reveal that you're Jewish. Now is the time. Please go and seek the king. This reminds us, or reminds me of places like 1 Timothy chapter 2, where we are told, first of all, that we should, there should be supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then he says, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so in this case, she's pleading not so much with God for this ability to lead a peaceful, godly life. She's going to plead with Xerxes that they would be enabled to lead a peaceful, godly life. Essentially, we are not the, the difficult, 
different kind of people that Haman has said we are. We are not bad citizens of your empire. We are good citizens of your empire. But here we have sort of that rub, that odd thing about the book of Esther in that God is not mentioned. And so here, in a sense, prayer is not mentioned, even though I'm sure there was a whole lot of praying going on. What I want us to understand as we think about this is that trusting in Christ and pleading to Christ and pleading with men are not mutually exclusive. We can do both of them. Sometimes we think that if we really trust Christ, we're not going to talk to men. But I think we can do both. Jonathan Edwards, for instance, when he was falsely accused uh, during his ministry in Northampton, chose that path. He, he did not answer the slanderers. He just, I will trust God. And he lost his ministry in Northampton. Now, I don't want to accuse him of anything. I probably would have taken a different course, but maybe he chose the right one. I'm not sure. But it wouldn't have been wrong for him to cry out to Jesus and also to declare his innocence. They are not mutually exclusive. Precisely because prayer is one of the appointed means in order that we receive the blessings of God through Jesus Christ. One of the more interesting books you can read is Robinson Crusoe. Don't know if you've ever read it. Um, try not to watch the movie versions because they, they miss something. And what happens is that one of the key scenes in the book is that he is sick and most likely dying on, on this deserted island. Okay? And all he has is a Bible. And he opens that Bible, and I believe it's Psalm 50, verse 15, which talks about, Cry unto me, and I will deliver you. And he cries out to God, and he is delivered. God was going to deliver him, but the instrumental means of that deliverance was the cry of faith. And so there are times when God withholds the blessings He intends until we make use of the means He has appointed. The Westminster Confession of Faith talks about this in chapter 5, paragraph 3. God in His ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at His pleasure. And so while God normally appoints means, he is free, as it says, to work without those means. But I like this part. He can work above them. He can do far more than what that means normally accomplishes. There are times when it is, he also works against them. All of this, of course, is at his pleasure. And so prayer is one of his appointed means to, get, to receive the blessings that God has for us in Christ. And so trusting God never neglects the use of proper means. And in this case, Xerxes is a means because he is the person 
with the power to change the circumstances. And so it's not wrong for Mordecai to ask her or command her, go talk to Xerxes. Well, I guess he couldn't have commanded her. He was no longer under her responsibility since she was married. So, Xerxes, but he's not the only person that matters in this. He's not the only one who is, has, is a, a means of God for something, but we see that Esther is also positioned as a person with access. Remember, what's the problem here? Haman is the second most powerful man in the kingdom. What do you think is the likelihood that Mordecai, his now sworn enemy, is going to be allowed to have an audience with the king? Nothing. And so even though Mordecai is a part of the administration, there is no way he's going to see the face of the king if Haman has anything to do with it. But Haman does not know about Esther. And Esther has access to the king. And so she is positioned there by God for a reason. And Mordecai realizes this. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? If God's really in control, He is the reason you are the queen, and this could be the reason why you're the queen. It's not just so that you could have a, a little more food and a life of leisure taking place, but you are in a position to save your people. She's in a unique position to save her people. When William Wilberforce met with Prime Minister Pitt, he, was talk, he talked about the good that could be done. And when he went to John Newton, he heard of the great good that could be done. If we had tapes of that meeting, it probably would have been similar to this discussion. William, God has placed you in Parliament as a Christian, to do good to other people. And so for the next 46 years of his life, William Wilberforce sought to end slavery in Britain. First, he ended the slave trade by the Britons, and then he saw an end of the practice of slavery in Britain. Forty-six years because he believed that he had come to that place in the kingdom for such a time as that. We see that Esther is not the only one. In Acts 13, we see this little phrase that can slip by us if we read too quickly. For David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation. God had a purpose for David 
in his generation. David's rise to power was not an accident, but was used to unify the Israelites and to expand the kingdom. Now, Mordecai, as he considers all of this, he's not exactly certain, uh, you know, because God's providence is mysterious to us in the presence, in the present, but he's talking about this possibility. This might be why you're there. Because she has found favor with Xerxes, and because Haman can block all of his attempts. But this, know this Mordecai is convinced that deliverance is going to come to his people. He thinks it's going to be through Esther, but he's not sure about that part. But he's banking on the promise of God from Genesis 12 that God will be faithful to his people. He will preserve his people. He will curse those who have cursed his people. So deliverance is going to come. He's just not sure where it's going to come from. And I want you, brothers and sisters... To have a similar mindset in you, that Christ has placed you where you are for a reason. And there may come a time when that becomes obvious. Because a crisis emerges and you are the one person who is able to assist somebody. I don't know what's going to happen on the campus of PCC this year, but Brittany... You're there for a reason. And you might not understand what will happen, but I believe that God is going to use you at PCC. Just as He uses many of you at Raytheon. I don't know about TEP. (laughs) But God places His people, not just in places, but also in positions for those providential moments when he wants them to do something incredible that they often don't even realize is incredible. For instance, a young Charles Haddon Spurgeon went to a church. And that night, one of the lay elders, lay men of the church preached because the pastor was out of town. And this man fumbled and stumbled as he delivered a sermon, but the Holy Spirit was at work because Charles Haddon Spurgeon became a Christian that night. We don't know who that guy was. But imagine England without Spurgeon. We don't know what God will use us to do and the effects that that might have through history. So believe, brothers and sisters, that you aren't simply there accidentally, but you are actually part of God's great plan for the salvation of many. Thirdly, entrust yourself to God's care when you do act. You see, Mordecai here is not embracing martyrdom, and neither should you. We should not run to be martyrs, but we also recognize that obedience to God brings with it risks at times. That sometimes we might do good but receive evil in response. Now, here, there was this plan, Esther, go see the king. Plead for your people. But here's the problem. She mentions 
as he was, but he obviously knew since he worked in the administration that anyone who enters the inner court without being called or, or summoned would be put to death. You could not show up to see the king uninvited. You might show up on my doorstep and I'll let you in the house. Okay, unless you're a cult guy knocking on my door. But um, I will let you in. Okay, you, That was not the case for the king. There were only seven people in the entire kingdom who could show up without being summoned to the king. And of course, Haman is one of those seven, and Mordecai isn't. So out of the whole empire, seven people, and oddly enough, Esther, his wife, is not one of them. I'm sure Amy would not be happy if I said, you need an appointment <laughs> to talk to the pastor. Okay? I would probably find out rather quickly that she does not need an appointment <laughs> to talk with the pastor. And my kids don't need appointments to talk with the pastor. There's a second problem. Not only is there the risk of death, okay, that's accepted if he extends the golden scepter to her, but here's the other problem. She doesn't have a lot of hope of that because she says, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now, there's a marriage for you. <laughs> Choosing not to see your wife for 30 days. That's so good. I'm sure he was not, as the king, he was not alone those 30 days, but nonetheless... She does not have a high risk, a high probability of being welcomed, she feels. While she may have found favor with him in the past, right now he seems to favor someone else. She does not have the pull with the impulsive Xerxes that she used to. And so then she tells him, to hold a fast on my behalf. In other words, she wants to be prepared for this encounter. She doesn't want to just go and do it. She knows she needs something. And so she calls this three-day fast, which is unusual in that it's both day and night, and it's both water and, and food. Okay. Now, fasts were often called, for instance, Ezra. Ezra 8, we see that Ezra fasted. I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. And so Ezra called the fast to seek God's protection for their journey to Jerusalem. She is calling a fast for, to seek God's protection for the rather short journey from the harem to the throne room, but it was a very dangerous journey because of the risks we've already talked about. Fasting is about humbling yourself. Fasting is about confessing your weakness. Fasting is about confessing your inability, and perhaps that is one of the reasons why we do not like it very much. There are some of us who do struggle with low blood sugar, and so fasting is not a great idea. But ordinarily, I would say, we find other reasons. I remember years ago, we had decided to put on an evangelistic concert in the 
my hometown of Nashua. And um, some of the people were bold. They were going to fast a whole month. They were going to drink. Don't worry. <laughs> I, only, I, I did a Daniel's fast for two weeks and then a whole fast for the other two weeks. It's not an easy two weeks. <laughs> so I'm imagining it was not an easy three days for these people. Even more difficult because uh, I had juice and they didn't. So, they're going to fast. And what they do is they've joined a long line of people who fasted for specific reasons. For instance, when Moses in Deuteronomy 9 recounts him going to Mount Horeb to receive the Ten Commandments, he talks about how he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate neither, bre- I neither ate bread nor drank water. Moses was miraculously sustained upon the mountain by God. Not only that, but we see in uh, 1 Kings 19 that Elijah arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Elijah is also miraculously sustained from this feast as he goes to where Moses had been. Took some 40 days and 40 nights. And we see Jesus... Also, it recounted prior to, uh, well, at the beginning of his temptation in Matthew 4, that he starts with fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus, of course, is greater than Moses and also greater than Elijah. He is the capital M mediator between God and his people. He is the capital P prophet who was to come. And Jesus fasted. And Jesus talks about fasting for us, not about if you fast, but when you fast in Matthew 6. But as we look at this passage and we we look at all of this, there's a shift that's taken place in the, the story where Mordecai had been giving the instructions, now suddenly Esther is giving the instructions. It is Esther who is a type of Christ, not so much Mordecai. Because it is Esther who's going to risk her life. Just as Jesus gave his life. Now Mordecai says to her, you know, essentially, um, whether, if you don't go, you're going to die anyway, right? So you're, you're a dead person. Might as well die trying, is essentially what he gets to. For Jesus, in, in John 11, as we talked about before, there's the prophecy of Caiaphas, the, the high priest, who said it is better that one man die for the nation. And in a sense, that's kind of what Mordecai is getting at. It's better that you die trying to save the nation than that the whole nation die. She's only risking. Jesus really laid it down for the salvation of his people. But before she could do that, she knew that she needed to pray and fast. Because those two things, everywhere else in Scripture, go together. 
They are manifestations of our entrusting ourselves to God. So we see in places like Daniel 9, Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking Him by prayer and pleas of mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And so we see in places like 1 Peter where we're called to humble ourselves, one way we can humble ourselves is fasting. And that while we fast, we then, as he says, cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And so we do this knowing of the mercies of God, knowing of the kindness of His heart because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. We're aware of these things, and so we're seeking His strength and favor while we do this. And so she's entrusting herself to God in a profound way in all of this. And she recognizes this when she says, if I perish, I perish. And now it's easy to kind of hear that in one of two ways, either total despair or faith, and I think it's like this mingling of the two. She is submitting to God in the midst of this. But she's trusting Him. It's similar to what we see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Basically, we're going to trust God whether we live or die. We're not going to bow before the idols. And so she's going to go in there whether she lives or whether she dies. For her, obedience is greater than living precisely because His loving kindness, His love is better than life. The only way we can make any sort of sacrifice or commitment like that, the only way we can respond when Jesus says, if any man wants to come after me, he must take up his cross daily and die to self. The only way we'll do that is if we believe that His love is better than life itself. That His love is better than all the things that we deny ourselves. That His love is better than an extra 15 or 20 years. It's the only way we can go. If I perish, I perish, and it's okay. But we see that Christ, who is our substitutionary atonement before God, is also, as it talked about in 1 Peter 2, our example or type. We are to mimic His obedience in this matter of entrusting ourselves to God. Whatever may come because we believe His love is better than life. And so Jesus submitted to the Father, and He did die for all the people of God, and so we have a ground of hope. There's a guarantee to that promise that God's people will be preserved despite persecution. The cross shows us that God will deliver the church even though some may be martyred, and that some may include us. Well, William Wilberforce struggled with where he was because he did not realize God had put him there. He thought it was himself. (laughs) In his private agony, he sought God and he learned to trust God. 
that God had put him there for just such a time and just such a task as the ending of the slave trade and slavery itself within the British kingdom. And so he entrusted himself to God just like Esther had entrusted herself to God for the saving of her people. Now your position and your purpose may not be as grand as theirs, but I know this, God has put you there for a purpose at an appropriate time. And when that time comes, entrust yourself to Him and obey while you depend on Him for prayer and protection. And some of the ways we express that dependence may include lament, fasting, while we pray. Maybe we're so weak as a church because we're still relying on ourselves. And I say that not like Desert Springs, but the American church. Let's pray. Father, this passage is humbling. Thank you that Esther points us to Jesus, who's the real hero of your story. But she is a heroine. She was where she didn't want to be and called to do something she didn't want to do. But by faith, she did it. And Father, thank you that you used that to protect that nation so that the seed of Abraham would be born for our salvation. So this is no small story, but it is a big story. And we thank you for using Esther. And we thank you for using us. Father, we ask for discernment. For us to recognize when we are at crossroads. that you would work by your Spirit so that we would also make use of those spiritual means of grace that we so desperately need so that we can walk in faithfulness because you are faithful to us. So Father, as we leave this chapter of Esther, help us to walk away with the reality that you are at work working above who we are for our good and the good of your people so that we can trust you when it doesn't look all that good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.